2: I want you to imagine that the door opens and George Bush walks through it. What is your reaction? Dude, Congress's campaign managers were elated when they asked that question, not directly to voters, but through a paid moderator and watching blue-collar voters they needed to reach through a one-way glass. To a person, these individuals could not see it. George Bush was not going to be in their living room. Was not going to happen. In 1988, campaigns were really getting to know the voters, at least in rooms where they wouldn't be seen. Give them $20, a few donuts, maybe a chicken salad sandwich, and get them to talk. Truth be told, they're not scientific. They aren't like surveys. But consultants were getting down on those quantified surveys. Dukaka strategist Tom Kiley would tell newspapers. They represent a window, these focus groups, into the real world and keep us in touch. And this comes to a head in 1988. The Democrats feel they had it. They had the 1988 election. Keep Bush out of that living room. And ask them to welcome their guy in. On the Bush side, Lee Atwater liked focus groups, too, especially to listen to the words and watch the body language. The story that Atwater would love to talk about the 1988 election, that he walked around talking to people, and they could care less about Bush, Dukakis. They could care less about the election. But then he talks about a group of bikers outside of a bar that he talked to. And again, Bush, Dukakis means nothing. But... When they talked about a story that had been in Reader's Digest about the state of Massachusetts giving murderers a weekend pass from jail, they couldn't stop talking about it. Here's what happens with all of these voter intakes in June and July of 1988. Both the Democrats and the Republicans know their strategy.
3: But I have a sense of blooming. Competence. Kind of sense of spring. Opportunity on Main Street. Michael Decock has called Boston Harbor an open
0: sewer. They gave George Bush a D rating.
4: Dream of peace.
2: We are independent. We've been called, I think, somewhat critically, the Me Generation.
3: I accept your nomination for the president. And I am very, very happy. The most liberal candidate. George Bush personally weakened regulations on corporate polluters. The greatest threat to our national security in this hemisphere is not the Sandinistas. Most expensive public policy mistake in the history of New England.
0: They both taste great and they give you all those vitamins, but the
4: thing is they're doing it in different ways. Dream of teachers who teach for life and not for living. Dream.
3: Go out there and win one for the giver. (laughs)
2: In the next two episodes, we're going to finish the election of 1988. And uh, you know the ending. But I do promise in these two episodes to tell multiple stories. There's a traditional way that 1988 is told. And I think we're going to start with that. front runner, and then a comeback. An underdog coming back. Because when you start with 1988, you have to consider Dukakis is winning the race. Memorial Day 1988, there was a very real scenario where we could have a President Dukakis. Let let me rephrase that. Everybody thought we were getting President Dukakis because the ABC Washington Post poll shows Dukakis with a 53% to 40% lead over Vice President Bush. Something else to think about. The last time polls like this happened in the memory of most voters and commentators about the 88 race, you're talking about the 1980 campaign, and the 1984 campaign. And very often in politics, we fight the last war. Well, in those elections, the polls didn't lie. Carter and Mondale, the polls said Carter and Mondale were going to lose, and then they did. What happened was exactly what the polls had predicted, for the most part.
0: The Republicans and Democrats have selected their presidential nominees, Mike Dukakis and George Bush. Sorry, for some reason, every time I hear those names, I feel an overwhelming urge to grab a blanket and a pillow anyway
2: here's um a conservative commentator morton downey jr and i remember morton downey jr even as a as a teenager at this time um he would yell at anyone who was a liberal he'd call them paddlum puking pundits or and morton downey jr has no interest in dukakis winning but he just says you know we're basically getting dukakis we have had
0: our interns in the office Conducting a telephone poll. Mike Dukakis, 46%. George Bush, 43%. So Bush loses that.
2: He's so upset about Bush's chances that he actually wants Reagan to run for vice president and then have Bush resign.
0: What would be wrong with Ronald Reagan running as the vice presidential candidate on George Bush's ticket and Bush resigning after the inauguration?
2: When was the last time there was a three in the row? Democrats, 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 or Republican, Republican, Republican? You have to go back to Franklin Roosevelt. People just have this kind of innate understanding that you don't win three elections in a row. American voters like to switch once in a while. The first thing that they're going to get that's an actual decision made by the now-crowned candidate to caucus is going to be who he's going to pick for vice president. And the best thing for Team Dukakis is to keep this kind of image. Dukakis, a competent governor with a record. Remember, Reagan's presidency hit bottom with Iran-Contra. We cannot forget this dominant scandal story. The days of Reagan, the days of this kind of delegation. You think the Duke would have let his advisors sell arms to Iran and give the money to Contras? Dukakis in control. And for Dukakis... He wants this to be broadcasted on the outside, but also to be true on the inside, as everyone who works for him is going to find out. Every ad, every word said by the campaign is approved by Mike Dukakis. There's only one quarterback in this show, but it's also true of his choice of a vice presidential nominee. He's keeping it close. There are a lot of folks who would like this to be a broader discussion.
4: We lift up a program to put America back to work.
2: Particularly those who are supporters of Jesse Jackson. Let's keep in mind where we were. Uh, Jesse Jackson's campaign broke. The delegate count is only about 700 separating Jackson and Dukakis. It's not enough for Jackson to
4: get a nomination. Back to work and use that money and provide jobs.
2: Remember, too, Democrats made history in 1984 by picking the first women for vice president. Now that Jesse Jackson made a run of it.
4: And use that money to build schools and pay teachers and educate our children. Got
2: over 6.8 million votes. The media, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, urged Jesse Jackson to call that he is a candidate for the Democratic vice presidential nomination. What Jackson will say is, I have earned the right of serious consideration. Jackson meets with Paul Brontus of the Dukakis campaign, who's in charge of his running mate search. It was a very meaningful preliminary discussion, they say. But not all Jackson's supporters are as nice about it. Charles Rangel, Democrat from New York, says, If we're talking about fairness and equity, then we're talking about Reverend Jackson. It seems to me it makes a lot of sense that when you're talking about a race with 12 horses, and two come in first and second, that says something about what the American people want. Congressman Gus Savage of Illinois makes it clearer, to exclude Jackson would be racism. And I'll not campaign for Dukakis if they don't include Jackson. Now Jackson counters what Savage is saying. No one one is proceeding proceeding in an atmosphere atmosphere of threat. And it's setting up that Dukakis is going to consult with lots of groups of people to talk about issues within the Democratic Party that they had run this primary on, to talk with the reverend, to talk with supporters, to go over potential picks maybe with Jackson if he's not going to pick him. Dukakis does not.
3: And many of you have heard me say so many times that the parallels between 1960 and 1988 are very close indeed. Then we had had eight rather amiable but sleepy years of Republicans in the White House. A son of Massachusetts born in our hometown, just a mile from where Kitty and I live.
2: He picks Lloyd Benson, a fiscally conservative hawkish senator from Texas.
3: And asking a great senator from the state of Texas to join him on the Democratic ticket. Well, Jack Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson beat that incumbent Republican vice president in 1960, and Mike Dukakis and Lloyd Benson are going to be beat him in 1988.
2: He has some opposite views from Dukakis on things. He supported the Contras, those rebels fighting in Nicaragua, where Dukakis absolutely against it.
3: As the vice presidential candidate, it's not just an honor, but I think it's a great opportunity to make a difference for
0: America.
2: Jesse Jackson learns about the pick from the media. The choice surprises a lot of folks.
0: Mike Dukakis has already electrified the country with his selection of Senator Lloyd Benson of Texas. All right, there's a dynamic duo for you.
2: Newspapers had eliminated Lloyd Benson from consideration. At campaign Bush, Bob Teeter and the Bush campaign were confused. There's no way, Teeter says, that he can deliver Texas. If he picked Gephardt, he might pick up uh, Missouri. If he picked John Glenn, he might pick up Ohio. Benson isn't enough to pick up Texas. However, George Bush thought it was a good strategic choice, at least in his diary. Bold, he said. We're going to have to show that they are very far apart on the issues. After a year of campaigning, candidate Bush was starting to think like his strategist. Here's another little thing. Lloyd Benson is up for his Senate seat. The voters will be voting at the same time. Lloyd Benson has never lost. Putting him on the ticket will help pull the caucus Benson to success in this state. This is due to the Lyndon Johnson rule. It's a special rule enacted in 1959 in Texas that allowed Lyndon Johnson to both run for Senate seat and then also run for President of the United States. He also engineered it so it would apply if he did a vice presidential run, but initially wanted to run for president. Texas passed that for Lyndon Johnson. It's still on the books in 1988. That means Lloyd Benson's name is going to appear on the Texas ballot twice. Once as Dukakis's running mate, and then also as a candidate for senator. He has never lost a Senate race since 1970. Texas voters love him. I think, you know, it's a factor in Dukakis' mind. It's maybe you get in the entree for the side dish, but it's a very appealing side dish that because of this mechanism, maybe you end up winning Texas. And if you win Texas, pretty much game over for Bush. Something else. In 1970, Lloyd Benson earned his Senate seat by defeating an opponent. His name was George Bush. Loser then. Loser now. They want to keep making that point. Atlanta, 1988, led by Mayor Andrew Young, the city saw billions of dollars in investment in the 80s and quickly became the epitome of the New South. This will be two years before the city is chosen for the Olympics, but bids are in the planning stages. Growth is undeniable. The cities of America were in decline in the 70s and 80s. And here, Atlanta was no exception. It lost population in those years. But throughout the 80s, the rate of decline in other cities continues, and it has in Atlanta, an omen that the next decade would see growth. And indeed, it becomes a super city in the 1990s. The city builds a subway and a convention center. Atlanta's the choice of Democrats for these reasons. Plus, it's in the South. Atlanta gets the convention. They're a party showing the world that they've come back from the shellacking of 1980. And all the sides have fought for a year and a half. They have to patch things up. At least for the cameras. In what is a great television event. Jackson will be upset about the Benson choice, but he does get a shining speech at the Atlantic Convention.
4: I I wasn't always on television. I was born a teenage mother who was born a teenage mother. I know abandonment and people being mean to you and saying you're nothing and nobody and can never be anything. I understand. Jesse Jackson... It's my third name. I'm adopted. When I had no name, my grandmother gave me her name. My name was Jesse Burns till I was 12. So I wouldn't have a blank space. She gave me a name to hold me over. I understand when nobody knows your name. I understand when you have no name. I understand. I wasn't born in the hospital, mama didn't have insurance, I was born in the bed at house. I really do understand, born in a three room house, bathroom in the backyard, slop job by the bed, no hot and cold running water, I understand. Wallpaper used for decoration? No. For a windbreaker. I understand. I'm a working person's person. That's why I understand you, whether you're black or white, I understand work. I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I had a shovel programmed for my hand. My mother, a working woman. So many days she went to work early, with runs in her stockings. She knew better, but she rolled runs in her stockings so that my brother and I could have matching socks and not be laughed at at school. I understand. At 3 o'clock on Thanksgiving Day, we couldn't eat turkey, because Mama was preparing somebody else's turkey at 3 o'clock. We had to play football to entertain ourselves, and then around 6 o'clock, she would get off the after Vista bus, and we would bring up the leftovers and eat our turkey. Leftovers, the caucus, the cranberries, around 8 o'clock at night. I really do understand. Every one of these funny labels they put on you, those of you who are watching this broadcast tonight in the projects on the corners, I understand. Call you outcast, low down, you can't make it, you're nothing, you're from nobody, subclass, underclass. When you see Jesse Jackson, When my name goes in nomination, your name goes in nomination. I was born in the slum, but the slum was not born in me.
2: Another way that Dukakis is going to show that the Democrats are different, that they can compete in the South, is to have one of their shining stars in the South, in the Democratic Party. Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton place Dukakis' name in nomination in a nationally publicized speech a Democrat in the increasingly Republican South who could talk about Democratic values in a way that didn't scare people. Of course, in his mind, Clinton was laying the groundwork for 96, or, if Dukakis was not successful, 92. Clinton has a lot to say. And the pitch is going to be, Dukakis is a new kind of Democrat. He's not the kind that gets beat in elections. His speech is scheduled to be 15 minutes long. As he gives various cases that shows how Dukakis is a new type of Democrat, not the old type.
4: That will richly reward learning and achievement and innovation. And it will punish harshly ignorance and waste.
2: But to hear Clinton tell the story in his memoir, when he gets these pages, including additions that were insisted on by the Dukakis team, not his own authorship, it becomes a lot more than 15 minutes. And he says he warned the Dukakis team, it could be too long. When he goes out to speak in Atlanta, the lights are on. They're not supposed to be on. People are mulling around. They're still making deals and talking. There's crowd noise. He's talking about new Democratic policy and ideas. And it goes on so long that some delegates begin booing Clinton to get him to finish. And when he says, in closing, closing. he gets his first round of cheers. Ouch. The Washington Post will say, Jesse Jackson electrified the crowd. Bill Clinton calcified the crowd. He would go on Johnny Carson, he'd make fun of himself, play the saxophone, and he'd set up his future. But in some ways, Clinton's speech sets up Dukakis.
3: This election is not about ideology.
2: Because Dukakis' speech is a lot better than Clinton's.
3: It's about competence
2: making the long walk from the back of the Omni, accompanied by Neil Diamond's Coming to America, the singer's ode to the classic American immigrant story. You come here. You work hard. There's promise. There's opportunity.
3: My friends, four years from now, when our citizens walk along Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., or when they see a picture of the White House on television, I want them to be proud of their government.
2: It's one of his best moments, really, rhetorically.
3: Mis amigos, todos nos enriquecemos y ennoblecemos. If anyone tells you that the American dream belongs to the privileged few and not to all of us, you tell them that the Reagan era is over. Poor
4: George.
2: They get additional bounce from the convention, and Dukakis has a huge lead.
3: He can't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth.
2: 17 points on Vice President Bush. Not everybody thinks that's real. Bush campaign thinks it's real enough that it's a threat. And they're going to get to work. They're going to develop a strategy that comes out of being 17 points behind. Not everybody, even in the Dukakis campaign, believes this is true. Susan Estrich will later say it was a squishy lead. And she gets really angry when the Republicans are about to meet And she's trying to get the governor to visit a crucial state of California, crucial in this election, and it's canceled. Because in August every year, Governor Mike Dukakis will visit the western part of Massachusetts. People there expect it. That's what he does every year. Even worse, according to her account, when she tries to call Dukakis to to change this, she's told... Just wait till 5 o'clock. He won't talk to political people until after 5 o'clock when his governor's work is done. Burning key August travel days in Massachusetts, visiting the western part of the state. It's not just governor anymore. For Dukakis, it was very simple. Yes, I am. If I'm making a competence argument, I have to be competent. Now, squishy or not, the feeling was Dukakis was in the lead and Bush would have a lot to catch up. The funny thing about this is, so, it's hard to think these days of California as a swing state. All right? Every election since 92, it's gone for Democrats. But in 1988, it is a swing state. And right about this time, Richard Nixon calls Bob Teeter and Craig Fuller, who are heading up the Bush campaign officially. They... Kind of have to talk to them. You had to kind of kiss the ring a little. He has still has a lot of conservative punditry that like Nixon that felt he got a bad deal. He's living in Upper Saddle River, New Jersey, and he'll come to Teterboro Airport and meet with campaigns once in a while. The sage of Teterboro tells them, California, that's the key. Bring Reagan to California. They nod. It's really a perfunctory visit. Who's he to tell him like where to bring Reagan and what campaign logistics? And Nixon kind of picks up that he's being humored. And he says, listen, boys, don't take my word for it. They are going to I'm ask right you for Reagan, Reagan in the last week, last week to cement this thing. Bush isn't thinking about Reagan. He's running on his own. And the first weapon, the quiet weapon they use is simply George Bush speaking at a podium. People behind him, average people, farmers, cops, senators, whoever he can get. His subject is not America. It's not Reagan. It's not prosperity, necessarily. It's Mike Dukakis. 17 points are going to ensure that. What's What's wrong wrong with the Pledge Pledge of Allegiance? Allegiance? Why doesn't he clean up Boston Harbor? He's a card-carrying liberal. Said so himself. Not me. I'm for the death penalty. He's against it. This is going to be a campaign about how great Bush is. That's not what's going to win. It's about... Dukakis, raising question, why does he get his ideas from Harvard Yard? Columnist Maureen Dowd asks of Bush, how could he attack him for getting ideas from Harvard when Bush went to Yale? Bush didn't care. He keeps on hitting. Yale isn't Harvard. Harvard's a think tank. That's what I meant to say. Something else is going to eventually reach his podium speeches. I'm Jane Polez how safe is our blood supply is the headline of reader's digest june 1988 the small rectangular book that summarizes other things in the news The unforgettable Jackie Gleason, along with a picture of Gleason, in a red checkered suit that's too big for him, and a silly red checkered hat that's way too big for him. How shock rock harms our kids. Trapped in the river, drama in real life. They're among the stories in this little booklet magazine that has a lot of summarized stories from other places and some original reporting. But none of those stories would have any effect on this presidential election. But tucked in there, not even the headline story, was getting away with murder. It was based on stories and reporting in the Lawrence, Massachusetts Tribune. And it talks about how a man raped a woman and beat and stabbed her husband in a suburb near Baltimore. That's a horrible crime, one that will greatly traumatize this family, the Barnes family and its victims. Cliff Barnes, an auto salesman, tied to a pole in the basement, cruelly tortured. He's able to escape, but by then the perp had taken his Camaro. Officers would find the man and the Camaro, and after shooting him to subdue him, they'd make the arrests. It's a terrible crime, and if that wasn't enough, it comes out. The man who committed the rape, the assault, and the kidnapping is a man, William Horton. And he was in prison for the murder of a gas station attendant in the 70s. That attendant was 17 years old. The only mistake he made was working at night and not handing over the till quickly enough. Horton, by all expectations, should have been in prison for that. But he wasn't. And he hadn't escaped either. He was on a weekend furlough. And he fled to Maryland. He escaped the probation officers, and fled to Maryland. It was a special state program, and that state was Massachusetts. So angered was the sentencing judge in Maryland that he refused to send the prisoner to Massachusetts for fear he might be released. We're keeping him in Maryland. The other people that were angered were the people in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where they remembered the crime in the 1970s, the killing of that 17-year-old boy. Corton would claim he didn't do it, It was one of his two other accomplices. But in Massachusetts, like many states, when a murder is committed, if three people are there and took part in any aspect, they're responsible for the murder. In Lawrence, Massachusetts, this story really hurt. The Lawrence Tribune will write 200 stories. They'll get fueled by the fact that they get no answers from the Massachusetts correction system and that the governor of the state, Mike Dukakis, will not accept an interview. Eventually, the stories that are in the Lawrence Tribune will be read on the floor of Congress by Minority Whip Newt Gingrich, and it'll get digested in Reader's Digest. Of course, Massachusetts Department of Corrections will say, clearly a regrettable and tragic mistake has been made by this department. There's no taking away from what happened in Maryland. William Horton is an exception to rule in a system that otherwise works. Few accounts of the 1988 election talk about this Reader's Digest issue at all. But as I did some research, I started to see insiders bring it up. And so I got curious. It had a huge circulation, over 28 million copies in 15 languages worldwide. There was discussion of this story in the issue, and there was outrage. In fact, when Atwater gets a talking... To those motorcycle guys, his mini focus group we spoke of, this was the article they had read. This was the kind of things that Lee Atwood was looking for to define this candidate. By the time we're finished, you are going to wonder if Horton is his running mate. The editor of Reader's Digest, even in 2022, retained anger about this furlough policy and to caucus his decisions around it, and later was editor of the Limbaugh Letter, said the Republican campaign was not the ones leading on this issue. This didn't come from the mind and mouth of Lee Atwater. One thing the Reader's Digest story, when it comes out, never mentions is Horton's race. And they do not have a picture of William Horton in this issue. Story number four in the Little Reader's Digest didn't immediately change anything, though. It was time for conventions, and because of those ancient political rules, Dukakis goes first. He's the challenging party. July 18th to 21st, 1988. And after his convention, here's the AP. Mr. Dukakis is sitting on a lead and is determined to keep the picture of himself as soft-edged as a Monet. He is therefore expected to take the high, safe road, avoiding specifics where possible. The Bush campaign appointed John Sununu, Bush's loyal friend from New Hampshire, as point man on Dukakis. The Baltimore Sun would say he's quick to return calls from reporters looking for the bad side of Mike Dukakis. They also recruited Ed King. He's a former Democrat, but he had beat Dukakis in a primary one year and shortly was governor. He'll talk for hours to reporters on how bad his old opponent Dukakis is. The Dukakis camp responded with their own designated hitters particularly Senator Edward Kennedy. he annoyed Bush at the convention, saying, where's George? And was now going to continue to pitch for this home state governor. Since so a long period, almost a month, between July 18th and August 15th. This battering continues. Lee Atwaters tells reporters, we plan to be on the offense every day. What will keep me awake at night is who is on the offense and who is on the defense. Anything that might be a strength for Dukakis had to be rendered a negative. He's a governor? Well, let's look at that record. Why didn't he clean up his own state? He's got a good economy. What about all the taxes those people pay? They even hit Dukakis on his snowblower. See, a video in Atlanta before he spoke at the convention said that Dukakis used the same snowblower for 25 years. Isn't that frugal? Isn't that a good thing, saving money? Bush goes after that, too. If he's that cheap, he's, he's going to cheapen in our, our defense. defense. George Stephanopoulos says When I arrived at the Dukakis campaign, we had a 17 point lead. Then came the summer assault. The Bush campaign, led by Lee Atwater, opened up a disciplined, ruthless, and sustained series of attack on Governor Dukakis and his character.
0: Dan Quayle prepared to address the GOP National Convention this afternoon as controversy swirled around his upcoming nomination as the Republican vice presidential
2: candidate. History will remember that the choice of Dan Quayle for vice president, a young senator from Indiana, you know, history will remember that it was a bad choice, brought a lot of controversy. But at first, you've got to think it's very reasonable. Here's Bush looking at the scene. He's behind in the polls. He's got a problem. He's aligned with Reagan being Reagan's vice president. Not everybody's happy with Reagan within the Republican Party right now. Reagan's been dealing with Gorbachev. Americans love it, but not all Republicans love that. One of the critics of the IMF treaty, the treaty that's going to result from the Reagan-Gorbachev negotiations, is Dan Quell. It's not bad to have a Midwest guy. Not bad to go young when Dukakis has chosen an older man for his vice president. Bush is choosing a young, dynamic man for his vice president. First baby boomer on a ticket. Republicans are going to meet in New Orleans. They're going to have this exciting unity convention. The Democrats got to bounce. We want to start to make up some of that. to show unity, show this new, vibrant, young um, Republican, and Bush is going to come on a steamboat on the Mississippi River and arrive at the podium, and there is going to be Dan Quayle meeting. The first thing that happens is a little hiccup with this. The security can't find Dan Quayle Dan Quayle, there was a message for him left that he's the pick. He needs to get up on stage. He doesn't get it, so he's in the audience. Security initially doesn't know what Quayle looks like. That's how not a famous figure he was. So they have to consult the Congressional um, Dictionary to get a picture of him. They finally pull him out, put him on the picture. The steamboat has to do a couple trips, according to Craig Fuller of the Bush campaign, it's kind of an omen for what was to come. And when Quail does make his speech, he seems a little eager. He seems like a game show contestant, one of the aides said, off the record. Just too eager to get this nomination.
3: If he thinks I can help him, so be it
2: leading everyone to say, what's wrong with this guy? What do we have on him? And they quickly find things, especially he's the first baby boomer on a ticket. So to be fair to Dan Quayle, he's the first one that has to deal with this. Did he pull strings to get out of his military service? Reporters are going to be on this story. The Bush campaign has no immediate answer. Dan Quayle flubs the answer.
4: In an interview just a few moments ago, uh, Dan Quayle has said that he may have made a few telephone calls to help him get into the National Guard. Were you aware aware of that when you
2: selected him to be vice president?
4: You know, that process of evaluating his military record was left up to others. We think he's got a good record. We're pleased with this selection.
2: And I talked about this a bit on my vice president's podcast, so I'll just play a bit from there. Dan Quayle had served in the Indiana National Guard. Uh, Air National Guard during the Vietnam War. Then the story builds, comes out that perhaps some strings were pulled, maybe a call was made, but there was a waiting list. There's some disagreement whether there was a waiting list or not, and did he advance in that waiting list because of who he was? His father was a judge. There was another scandal, too. It wasn't just the military service scandal. There was also a question about the lobbyist Paula Parkinson who was accused of trading sexual favors for legislation. And Quayle had stayed at her place along with other congressmen when he was in the House in 1980, so eight years before the election. Government was building a case against Parkinson, uh, and now all of all of the meetings were coming out. Quayle had one of them. That was Dorf, though, by the military issue and his answers.
4: For the purpose of casting Maine's 22 votes, the daughter of George and Barbara Bush, Doro Bush LeBlanc.
3: Madam Secretary, I have never been prouder than I am this moment to be able to cast all 22 votes from the state of Maine for the most decent, the most honest the most caring man ever to seek the presidency, a man who has made me proud every single day of my life, and a man who will make America proud, the next president of the United States, my own beloved father, George
0: Bush.
2: In New Orleans, at the convention, they're not focused as much on quail. They're They're realizing within the campaign that they're not getting This asset that they thought, but they still go with the same strategy. This election is about attacking Dukakis, informing people of the person, the mystery man who you don't know.
0: What is the Michael Dukakis record? In 1974, in his first campaign for governor, Michael Dukakis promised the people of Massachusetts that he would not raise their taxes. He broke that promise the next year with the largest tax increase in the state's history. People called it Taxachusetts. He taxed the poor, taxed the rich, taxed the young, taxed the old, taxed the middle class, he taxed businesses, and he taxed families. By the time the voters turned him out of office in 1979, they were carrying a tax burden 44% above the national
2: average. They even attacked Dukakis for the unconventional choice of pastel colors at the Atlantic Convention, the departure from the traditional red, white, and blue. Governor Tom Keene of New Jersey dubs it pastel patriotism and accused the Democrats of weakening America, just like they weakened those colors. Quayle, too, in his speech, emphasizes George Bush's pledge not to raise taxes. And says with Michael Dukakis' track record, he will.
3: Thank you very very much.
2: Bush matches Dukakis with a good speech.
3: I have many friends to thank tonight. And
2: Dukakis made a good speech here in New Orleans. George authority. Bush matches it with a good and speech of his, his all own.
3: Men who entered the contest for this presidency this year,
2: um, famously. He's going to separate himself, distance himself just a bit little from Ronald Reagan. A lot of people don't know what he's talking about. A thousand Points of a Light to the, to the this. loneliest
3: town on the quietest street to take our message of hope and growth for every American. To every American, I will keep America moving forward, always forward, for a better America. For an endless, enduring dream and a thousand points of life. This is my mission and I will complete it.
2: And I ask everyone. Kinder, gentler nation. You know, you, you do have to understand that within the insiders in the Republican Party, that kinder, gentler thing, which seems very light perhaps, and to the is separating from Reagan, saying that Reagan's policies, which you were part of as VP, is harsh. One that notices Nancy Reagan, who whispers to the person next to her, kinder and gentler than what? Put that aside, one admirer of his speech was future candidate Bill Clinton. Clinton says in my life, George Bush had given a marvelous acceptance speech at the convention, offering kinder, gentler Reaganism, and telling us, to read my lips. No new taxes. But that didn't extend to Mike Dukakis, that kinder of gentler. Lee Atwater and company went after him like a pack of rabid dogs, and Mike didn't do himself any favors by not responding quickly and vigorously to attacks. One of the attacks that Dukakis insiders think had most effect is one that few talk about today. And it does involve a man named Willie Horton, that we'll talk about in a bit. It doesn't involve him. It doesn't involve a guy riding on a tank, that we'll talk about next episode. doesn't involve a debate answer, and it doesn't involve an ACLU card. It does involve the President, Ronald Reagan, though maybe it wasn't supposed to. At a press conference in Louisville, Kentucky, Dukakis lambasted White House ethics under President Reagan, and he invoked a Greek phrase which implied... That a fish rots from the head down. The guy who's in charge caused the problems. It's right after Iran-Contra. This is an attack on Reagan. So reporters go to Reagan and ask for a response. He smiles. He says, I'm not going to pick on an invalid. The reporters are shocked. Is this part of the script? Is Reagan trying to come up with a funny line? Did he make a horrible mistake? All of these things... Are possible. And what happens next is that with no basis, there are rumors that the Democratic candidate for President of the United States had undergone some type of psychiatric treatment, plunging caucus's poll numbers by 5% overnight. That's what Susan Estridge, the, the Dukakis campaign head, says. She points out, and will point out in several books and interviews later, that this was a kind of swift boat moment for them. Oh, yeah. Dukakis is not crazy. More at 11. That hurt. Stephanopoulos says, This joke was a calculated effort to ignite a false rumor that spread around Washington by Republican operatives that Dukakis had been treated for depression, and politically it worked. Though the allegation was false, Dukakis is forced to call a press conference with his doctor to release his medical records in order to deny it. It was a tactic that Lee Atwater... You know, his hands seemed to be on it. He skillfully planted stories that resonate with some of today's social media tactics. Obscure individuals would whisper things to reporters and make baseless claims and make it sound like gospel truth. And have some, like, obscure Idaho state senator say that Michael Dukakis' wife, Kitty Dukakis, had burned a flag in college. There was no evidence for it at all. But the rumor persists subtly influencing coverage and conversations even if it wasn't directly reported
1: want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
2: In 2004, and sense, Susan Estridge would see what's happening with John Kerry, with the Swift Boat ads that were coming out, and would say, this is exactly what happened to us on all of that crazy talk coming from Reagan. Now, we don't know really what happened here. Reagan might have went off script. He might have been told to do it. He might have gotten mad that he was attacked. After all, Dukakis did say rotting fish. There is even a possibility that Adwater was on to Kitty Dukakis, who did receive treatment. For depression. And when the rumor, as if you're going to engage in rumor rhetoric, it's like a little bit of political chemical warfare. You never know which way it's going to blow or how it's going to come out. And somehow that got conflated with Michael Dukakis instead of Kitty. After all, Dukakis had talked about when he lost the governorship to Ed King how sad he was. I've been to this movie, Susan Estridge would say, years later in 2004, when she saw the Swift boat ads. The lies move the numbers more than the truth ever could. In a documentary on attack ads that came decades after the election, Mike Dukakis would say that the way to combat attack ads is to pin them on your opponent and make your opponent seem like there's someone who uses those nasty ads. This tactic, though, is very difficult to do. Dukakis does not succeed, though he tries in 1988, we'll talk about. When they try to release an ad, the Dukakis campaign that shows these kind of anonymous Bush handlers that are telling him what to say, that are controlling him and his campaign, and obviously are going to control his presidency, that he's going to work for these handlers and not for you, it's a little over the heads of voters. Democrats in Texas, they're trying to win here in Texas, and they're getting hammered by all these attacks on caucus that are direct and then you guys run this abstract ad nobody understands about Beltway stuff, campaign handlers. This is what we respond with? Dan Quill holds a feisty press conference in his home county in Indiana. The media there are asking questions and they're verbally abused by local fans this quail thing hurts it, It's not how they wanted to spend their time. It's a new talking point for the contrast between Dukakis and Bush. Dukakis can now say, "Look, neither of us are president yet, but we faced our first decision. I picked somebody everybody likes. people really liked Lloyd Benston. He picked Dan Quayle. That's a talking point Bush campaign didn't need, but it doesn't change their game plan. I noted this in um, a podcast on my vice president uh, podcast and about Dan Quayle, that the real part of the story doesn't get told a lot is that some, Atwater's one of them, Quayle maybe himself bought into it, um, believe that Quayle was lightning rod, maybe the best service ever offered to candidate Bush. All the media attention and negative stuff went to him. And he's only a vice presidential candidate. So Bush doesn't change strategy. It's go after Dukakis. So while they're aiming at number two, we're going to aim at number one. Bush hit the swing states, including New Jersey. Considered a swing state in the 1980s. There's another one. Hasn't voted Republican since the 92 election, since Clinton. But Bush campaigns hard for New Jersey here. He visits a flag factory in New Jersey. And he says, flag sales are up. You people are great. He's surrounded by red, white, and blue, and stars. It's a visual attack on Dukakis's pledge of allegiance. But it works. The media is all over with stories of Bush and flags and people working at the factory. You know, Dukakis' campaign's going to point out, on the day he goes and appears at a flag factory, candidate Dukakis just gave you his new health care program in stunning detail. Why are you letting Bush get away with this? And it seemed that maybe, despite the fact that Bush may not be a welcome person in a living room of some Reagan Democrat voters, and that you couldn't get people to say, he's just like me, I want to have a beer with him, he could use his podium, his stump, to point out the problems with the other guy. You may not like me, here's the other guy. What's the old saying? Don't look at me, don't look at me, look at that person up in the tree. And there's one problem that Bush has been pointing out since Memorial Day. goes back to that Reader's Digest and Lawrence Tribune story. He allowed weekend passes, and one of the prisoners, William Horton, escaped. Eventually, it becomes, at the podium, he allowed 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 weekend passes, and one of the prisoners, Willie Willie Horton, escaped. You know... I'm not sympathetic at all to a person who commits murder and kidnapping and rape as it's been established that Horton did. I will point out that the convict, the man who is still a convict and will remain the rest of his life in prison, insists that he never used Willie, that Republicans changed his name. This may be true. The one that disputes this is Cliff Barnes, who was kidnapped and tied to the poll in his basement for them. He says that during the encounter, he insisted that his name was Willie. Um, here's another thing: the idea when when Bush says weekend passes, that isn't how the program worked, but it's the way Republicans characterized it. Both these things are important because, as a scholar we'll talk about later had noted, they go it goes from the the environs of the Republican campaign to the news unabridged. They use Willie. They use weekend passes in the news discussion. Now, this is a, sounds shocking, this whole furlough or weekend pass story, you know. In the landscape of the mid to late 80s, all 50 states had some kind of furlough program. That's what must be understood. We talked about in episode four of this program how when Al Gore brings it up in a debate, he says, are you going to do this nationally? The audience in the debate laughs. And Dukakis actually says eventually, of course not. Well, federal government already had a program. And all 50 states had some type of furlough program. They granted inmates temporary freedom. Could be a few hours. Could be several weeks. Depended on their sentence. And it depended, and this is the whole reason for the program, on their behavior in prison. This is a way that wardens controlled the population. And that's why in the Massachusetts Department of Corrections and the Department of Corrections in many of the states and the federal program, they defended its practice. This is why Ronald Reagan, Defended the practice as President of the United States as being essential. In the federal prison system, his experts were telling him to do this. Beyond prison walls, it sounds crazy. But these prisoners could reconnect with family, seek employment, engage in religious activities. Inside baseball, the penal system, not questioned. But in living rooms and dining tables of America, it still sounds crazy. And a lot of these programs, it still exists. But a lot of these programs will be greatly reduced after this election, and particularly going into the anti-crime wave and the crime bill of the 90s. And let prisoners out? It still sounds a little crazy, right? To you and I, I, I think. Reagan did it when he was governor of California. The caucus will constantly make a point that a Republican governor in Massachusetts before him initiated this program. It wasn't even his furlough program. However, he had expanded it. 10% of state and federal prisoners were granted furloughs in 1987. A magazine editor for correction professionals lauded the system as widespread, successful, and relatively problem-free. Now, I'm not here. I'm not a propagandist. My history can be up your I'm not here to make you angry. But I got to give you the other side to this. You know, Cliff Barnes and his wife, their argument is, yeah, relatively problem-free. Well, we had a problem with it. My wife was raped. I was kidnapped and stabbed multiple times. We're tired of us being statistics. Crime victims matter. And they will take to the stump. The Barneses will take to the stump. And in low key events throughout the country funded by various conservative groups, they will be out there speaking on this issue. Now, a couple of things to say on it. Um, Al Gore is the first to bring it into national political debate, but he isn't the first to come up with the story. And that's something that I think is, is, it's one of these funny things. That's like you get a piece of information and you get a new piece of information. And then now often, the more we even look at that, we're getting additional information on that second piece of information. What do I mean by all that? A lot of the understanding of the 1988 election is that this Willie Horton ad, let's say it that way, comes out. But Gore a Democrat, was the first one to bring it up. And that's true in national political debate. However, I can tell you that the Reader's Digest editor said that the story was being researched and planned for the June 88 issue a month before Gore brought it up in the debate. It was coming out no matter what. Well, it's going to reach TV screens of America. Bush and Dukakis on crime. A man with his eyes bugged out, his mouth open, hair untrimmed, unkept. And he is an African-American man. The image is blurry. Despite a
0: life sentence, Horton
3: received 10 weekend passes from prison.
2: He says himself, Mr. William Horton, currently a convict, I would be scared of me.
3: Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend.
2: He had just recovered from surgery over the police shooting him to subdue him. His mugshot was taken when he was in solitary for a week, straight out of surgery.
3: Stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his
2: girlfriend. America was told by Americans for Bush, a branch of the National Security Political Action Committee, NSPAC, spearheaded by Floyd Brown. Their ad, Weekend Passes, created by Larry McCarthy, who had worked for Roger Ailes, who was heading up media for Bush. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Exploited the Horton case to assail to Dukakis. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. The addition that the NSPAC decides is to include this mugshot. In some cases, they add the mugshot to the ad after the ad's been approved by T V stations who do not see the mugshot. Stabbing the man Crucially, it's run as an independent expenditure. There is no direct tie to Bush campaign 1988. Stabbing the man. In fact, the Bush campaign disavows any involvement in its production. Despite that, NSPAC is full of former Republican operatives, including two that work for Roger Ailes. And they say, In later interviews, the Bush team cheered it while giving it a very faint disavowal that we weren't going to listen to. Roger Ale tells a reporter, My only question is, should we have Horton appear with a knife in his hand or not when we run our own ads? He then says he made that comment off the record. But the reporter had asked him, please, it's good color commentary for the story. Though Ailes allows him to keep it in. The reporter confirms this. And Ailes will later said he regretted the comment. Nobody regretted the results of this shocking ad. It wasn't run that much on TV. But that doesn't matter. Because it generates news. The fact that this ad runs at all generates news. It triggered news reports when Bush would mention Willie Horton's name on the stump. Estridge would say later in a discussion about the 88 race, every time your guy mentioned Horton, reporters, and the news would put his face up there. And as soon as the Willie Horton ad comes from the private group's stop, they launched their own campaign. It's called Revolving Door. It never shows Willie Horton's face. It shows prisoners going into a revolving prison door and then coming out, streams of them, going in, going out. Many of them are killers, the ad said, and some have been allowed to escape. According to Kathleen Hall Jameson, professor at Annenberg Institute and the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the 1989 book, Dirty Politics, um, someone I might add, who is influential to me in reading our books. The Bush campaign ad, Jameson said, plays on certain realities of TV watching. Those ads seamlessly intertwined with news coverage, leaving voters often unable to distinguish between campaign messages and actual news reports. In some studies, voters would say they heard on the news things that were actually part of the revolving door ad, because the Bush campaign would run them during news segments. Dukakis would say how unfair it was. Reagan was governor. Two prisoners murdered people while out on furlough. Two federal prisoners murdered people while out on furlough while Reagan was president. When critics challenged the program, what did Reagan do? He didn't change the program. He defended it. Here's what Reagan says in a speech. More than 20,000 already have these passes, he says, after a furloughed prisoner murdered a person. And this was the only case of its kind, the only murder. California under Governor Reagan was leading the nation in rehabilitation. Obviously, you can't be perfect. But Dukakis' team was slow to bring up this federal angle and Reagan's support for the program. As we're going to talk about, to 1988 and Willie Horton, the use of this ad is going to generate a lot of commentary in both ways. Here's, though, where it can be said to be fair to use. Dukakis did embrace this program that many people in 88 and now found horrific. He took a specific step to continue it. Yes, a Republican governor in Massachusetts had started the program. That's true. And no, Dukakis didn't have direct control over saying Horton gets a pass or this one gets a pass. No, it's administered by a state correction system outside of his say-so. But when the Massachusetts Supreme Court said that the law had to apply to everyone, including murderers, Dukakis had an opportunity. The legislature then was going to pass a bill. and Dukakis had an opportunity to refine it to make it only for lower criminals. He chose to veto that bill. It was not that Dukakis is crazy or he loved crime for his part. He's getting an earful from wardens. This program works. Sure, there's a risk. But prisoners behave better when there's some incentive. And if you don't extend it for every type... It's not going to have that effect. You're going to weaken the whole system. But what this furlough does for us, the wardens say, is give us an incentive for prisoners to behave that we can take away. It's also something that if one had the record and the events happened in 87, is already getting media attention and you're running for president. You know, think about it that way you're Massachusetts governor, you're running for president, it is beyond comprehension that you would not see this as a problem and take steps to correct it, have a good spin, have a good answer. It is true that in early 1988, Dukakis confined the program to people less than murder. But that's stunningly too late. That was seen as a political move since he was indeed running for president. He clearly wasn't ready for the argument. He said years later, I made this dumb mistake not to respond, and I paid for it. He was used to and had answers on the death penalty thing. This death penalty thing, I'm from Boston. Bush is from Houston. Massachusetts had the lowest homicide rate in America. Even though he was it was kind of a liberal goody-two-shoes issue, made him seem like a liberal, Dukakis could also wave the flag of principle on that. Yes, I know you guys hate it, but it's morally right you know, is something that might appeal in some manner to people who were deeply religious or deeply um, wanted a person of strong fiber. It was a position shared by fellow Governor Mario Cuomo. Most people, even in Massachusetts, didn't know that. But even when he said things like that, he would be talking about the broader issue and they'd be talking about the specific case. He didn't see this one coming and he couldn't quite respond. And attacking Bush, the caucus didn't want to do it. Because in his view, then he would become seen as negative. Maybe because of the legacy of the primaries. They had no choice. Here's the Baltimore Sun. The Dukakis campaign has been charged once already with using excessively astringent tactics in regards to the Biden incident. The attack videotape. The DNC official, off the record, tells the Sun. The Dukakis campaign basically has their hands tied. When it comes to getting hardball, they can't do it. The inventors of the attack tape can't pull anything cute.
3: His revolving door prison policy gave weekend furloughs to first-degree murderers not eligible for parole. While out, many committed other crimes like kidnapping and rape, and many are still at large. Now Michael Dukakis says he wants to do for America what he's done for Massachusetts.
2: America can't afford that risk. So the Bush campaign gets free media coverage off the ad because it's so shocking. So newspapers have to, and so TV news, has to discuss not just the Willie Horton issue itself, but also the fact that there's this ad. But when they're talking about the ad, they're talking about the ad. And they're talking about an issue of crime favorable to Bush. Even if they're talking about, why should we run this terrible ad? In a study, 19 separate evening news broadcasts between October 7th and Election Day mentioned Horton, often including his photograph or photos of his victim's and images from the Weekend Passes ad, something that Kathleen Hall Jameson noted at the time and in her books was the melding of news and ads that would occur. Jameson's going to become one of the pioneers of political fact-checking, and it's her experience in the 1988 election that leads to her book, Dirty Politics, an early gem in the field on that topic. Todd Blodgett, of Clear Lake consultant served on the Reagan-Bush White House staff. And decades later, um, he would talk about his experience. He would express regret about the Horton ad. His role in the campaign, he said, was to devise wedge issues, to try to get blue-collar workers and rural voters to vote Republican. Or at least, don't vote for Dukakis. Bush figured they'd win Texas. The Carrying Pennsylvania and Michigan would doom Dukakis. How are you going to get those states? Crime. Fear of crime. Bludgett later would say that it wasn't about race. Now, everyone on the GOP side is going to say this, and sometimes it's hard to believe because they get so much benefit, and there was a choice made to show Willie Horton's picture prominent in the first non-campaign, you know, independent expenditure ad. Bludgett will quote many people quote Atwater saying later, he wished Horton were white so they wouldn't have that issue. We'll talk about that in the next episode. No bush Quail campaign ads, it should be said, featured Horton's Face. Some Bush advisors, Blodgett said, were disingenuous about their roles. Americans for Bush did pay for the ad, but Ailes and Atwater, Blodgett would say, through surrogates, knew all about Floyd Brown's work, and that Roger Ailes helped determine, Blodgett said, where and when the ad would run. Based on Dick Worthlin, who is Bush's official campaign manager, based on his polling, RNC opposition researchers. Provided operatives working for Brown with data and assistance. Bush campaign chairman James Baker didn't disavow the Horton ad until day 25. It aired for 28 days. Blake Brown told the media at the time if they were really interested in us stopping this, do you think they would have waited this long? The Democrats correctly condemned such clandestine and FEC prohibited coordination. And dishonest disavowals of it. Now, Blodgett will say that when the um, Dukakis campaign responds with a very late, we're talking about the end of October, after this thing came out the beginning of September and was in Reader's Digest in June, Dukakis' campaign finally comes out with a TV ad in the end of October. Too little, too late, Estridge is going to say, that points out that Bush's vice president there's a federal program and a guy goes off furlough and murder someone. He was a drug dealer, and his name was Angel Medrano. Well, Blodgett will point out, Dukakis did this too. He's using a person who's of a minority race. The response to Horton is acknowledged by everyone. Susan Estrich, the campaign manager. John Sasso, the former campaign manager. Mike Dukakis, the candidate himself, who always, always took the blame himself. It was his own decision not to respond. The response to Horton was way too late and possibly counterproductive in that, as we're going to talk about the next episode, they possibly generated a talking point for the Bush campaign, even in their response. Dukakis owned it as a former candidate, a professor in Massachusetts. He'll discuss the election a lot and never blame the election on others. But there is a story. The New York governor, Mario Cuomo, had whispered in Dukakis' ear, um, influential figure for Dukakis, fellow governor, a person that many people wanted to be the nominee, and he said, Mike, don't respond to this stuff. If you respond to this stuff, story's going to be about you. In 1990, the Ohio Democratic Party joined forces with the black elected Democrats of Ohio and filed a complaint with the Federal Election Commission leveling a complaint against the GOP and the NSPAC claiming that they had orchestrated a clandestine dance with the Bush campaign. And it was an illicit, in-kind campaign contribution. The FEC investigated. There was depositions of officials by both camps which were embarrassing in some cases, tantalizing details, but nothing more than indirect ties between McCarthy and the Bush campaign was ever revealed, and the FEC never ruled in the case. Lee Atwater would pen an article a few years later in Life magazine as he was dying of a brain tumor just at the age of 40. My illness helped me to see what is missing in society and what is, was missing in me. A little heart, a lot of brotherhood. In 1988, fighting Dukakis, I said that I would strip the bark off the little bastard and make Willie Harton his running mate. I'm sorry for both statements. The first, for its naked cruelty. The second, because it makes me sound racist. Which I am not. There's a lot there in Atwater's statement. And I want to first present the opinion of Mary Matlin, who served under Atwater in 88 and who would run the 92 campaign, who stresses that who among us, you know, dying of a brain tumor might make all kinds of statements, and and have regrets. But politics are politics, and parties have to fight this out. There's real issues at stake. And um, I think her point's valid, and that has to be considered in Atwater's statement. This is the statement of a person who is, you know, religious and facing a moment. He'll also write a letter to Mike Dukakis directly apologizing. He'll apologize to every political opponent that he helped. But, you know, it, there's a, a possible note that we all can take in the future. Look at ourselves today, 2023. A little heart, a lot of brotherhood, you know. It hasn't gotten better. I, mean, I call this, you break everybody's back, his quote, the 1988 campaign, the start of politics as we know it. And I, I think it holds true. I think everyone who looks at 88 says it's all true. That doesn't mean every every election has a little bit in it, you know. There's bits of 76 that started. We're still going after Iowa as we first did in 76. The primary rules that we live under are still basically the 72 primary rules. The 88 really seems to be no holds barred as that nature of, you know, it was an open election and anybody could have walked through that door. Certain things I think have gotten better since uh, 88, certain things. Like, for instance... um, I don't think one soundbite kills you anymore in politics. There's the ability to counter-react and and real-time spin and things like this. Okay, so what's the result of all of this? From 17-point lead for Dukakis during his convention in July, Gallup asks people, Do you think Bush is sincere? Yes, most people did. 59%, but now 74% do. Do you think he's strong? In August 5th, 42% thought he was strong. Now, 57% think he's strong. Do you think he's a leader? 37% thought that in August 5th. After the convention, August 21st, 50% think he's a leader. Is he warm and friendly, George Bush? Only 49% said that in August 5th. August 21st, 65% say Bush is warm and friendly. Who are you going to vote for? George Bush? 42% said yes, August 5th. Now 48% say yes, August 21st. And just 44% say Michael Dukakis. A six-point lead. And you might say, uh, listening to this, that the Willie Horton ad was sure costly. But here's the thing, and I and I guess it's part of like the way we remember history is different from what might have happened. That cross, where Bush takes the lead, occurred before the first NSPAC ad even was aired. Before Willie Horton's face was on television. Yes, he was mentioned in stump speeches. Yes. Long before this pole cross. Most likely, it's a combo of the Dukakis team certainly feels Reagan keeping the story alive on the Dukakis crazy rumors right after the convention and George Bush's convention moment. I want to thank you for listening. In the next episode, we'll conclude the election of 1988 and I'm going to posit the argument that there were two elections going on at once. One that you could see and one that's more visible with hindsight. I want to thank you for listening, and the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Whenever we have a series like this, this is a good opportunity to please tell other people about the program. Thanks for listening.